In just a few minutes, we'll jump into Acts chapter 11, but I want to take a little bit extra time to set that conversation up by sharing with you about what I think is probably the most important book that was written for the American church this year. And it's a book called The Great Dechurching. Who's leaving? Why are they leaving? And what would it take to bring them back? Now, I read this book, we read this book with our staff team, our elders, we did a podcast on it with the authors, and I'm not saying it's the best book of the year or my favorite book or will be your favorite book if you read it, but I am saying it might be the most important book for the American church. It's been talked about, that book has been talked about in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post. So what's it say that has everybody talking? Well, it's written by a couple of pastors in Orlando, and they saw uh, statistics that said that only 6% of their community was involved in church. And they thought, that sounded like something you'd say about New York City or LA, but not Orlando, and yet kind of fit their experience. They knew a lot of people who weren't a part of church at all. And so they, they teamed up, these two pastors teamed up with a sociology of religion professor, a guy named Ryan Burge, who's just really great on this stuff. And they did, a, they did a deep dive into the data. And what they found was not ex- what they expected to find. What they found was this, that since 1990, 25 million Americans have left church. 25 million Americans who used to go to church aren't going to church anymore. And the way they define that is people who went at least once a month and now who go less than once a year in person to church. Now, that's not just something that happens on the coast. It's happening everywhere in our country. And I I bet that you know somebody who used to go to church and no longer does. And so this isn't just like an idea to discuss or a theory to debate. This is personal because it's talking about your friends. It's talking about people who used to be in your small group. It might be talking about your kids or your parents. I mean, the reality is that God has blessed us here so that we're working with more people today in, through the crossing than we have in the 23-year history of the church. But that's not usual See, what's normal is that people have been leaving churches and those churches are getting smaller. Now, if like me, this is your job and you're in church world and you read all this stuff, that wasn't exactly new. We knew less people were attending church. But if you were to ask me, well, who? Like describe who's coming less often. Who are those 25 million? What are they like? I would have told you that they're younger, that they're more highly educated, have a formal education, and that uh, uh, they're more on the political left. You know what it turns out? It turns out that I was completely wrong. Completely wrong. It turns out that, that when you get down into the data and you say, well, why are people leaving churches like the crossing? Here's what you find. Who's leaving? Well, it's pretty evenly distributed between men and women. But where it gets surprising is that it's not just kind of a thing with young people. In fact, there are a lot of people who are in their 50s and their 60s and their 70s who are leaving the church. And it's not people like I thought on the political left. It's, if anything right now, more people on the political right. That there are more and more people who call themselves evangelicals, but who don't go to church. 
Because they think of an evangelical, and, and the way they think about it is more of a political category than it is a biblical identity. And it turns out that the people who are leaving have less formal education and less income. I mean, this really surprised me, but of all the data, and all the data they found that only 3% of the people who are de-churching have master's degrees. It's not a, a phenomenon of the, those who have more education, but those who have less. And if you'd asked me, well, why are people leaving the church? I would have said it's because they're angry. They've been hurt. They experienced some sort of church abuse or church hurt. And, or maybe they saw the scandals in the media about churches. And that's what turned them off. But again, I was wrong. Do you know the number one reason that people say that they no longer attend church? Here it is. I wish we had a drum roll. The number one reason is because they moved. They just moved. They moved and they never found a church to get involved in. They moved and got busy with other things in the move and they just stayed outside the church. It's really surprising because what, what, what you would have expected was, was, was something totally different than they moved. The way the book puts it in the Great Dechurching is that there are people who left, for, uh, they left casually, and then there are people who left because there were casualties. Now, the casualties are those people who were hurt by church. And that's about half the people who've left churches like the crossing, or they were turned off by the scandals or the politics or something like that. And those people say, hey, we're not interested in going back to church. And if you have a friend like that, and I bet you do because there's a lot of people in this category, if you have a friend like that, here's what they need from you. They need a trusting relationship where you don't defend the church and where we as Christians have blown it, you admit that. That you stay calm and you don't react to everything they say and that you listen well and ask good questions to really understand their story. But about half the people who've left the church, churches like the crossing, are the casually de-churched. These are the people who left because they moved. It's left because they got busy. I mean, what they told people was, uh, we have like three kids in seven different soccer leagues, right? And life is busier than ever, and so we just found ourselves not going anymore. Or COVID. Remember that thing, that nightmare called COVID, it, it, where we shut everything down? And then people got used to watching church online. And then they found out, man, I can just have a whole Sunday morning and just kind of do my laundry and have church on in the background. And they always intended to come back, but they never did. Or another group of people said they left church because they just had some traumatic life event. So life threw them a curveball. They got divorced, they had a job change, and something completely unexpected, and that took them out. Now, it, it, what's really encouraging is that 100% of the casually de-churched say they are very willing to come back to church. And this is millions of people. So, so what they need, like if you have somebody like that who just kind of faded off, here's what they said they need. They just need to be invited back in. They just need a friend to say, hey, come to church and sit with me. Maybe it's the, somebody who's friends with their kids and their parents just invite the whole family to church. I want to tell you this story of a woman I talked to on the phone a couple weeks ago. Her name is Shanna, and she gave me permission to share this. 
we had put on our live stream around Mid-Missouri, those people who are watching uh, The Crossing in Mid-Missouri, we had put a little thing on there where I just said, hey, we'd love to get to know you and hear your story. So if you'd ever like to talk to a pastor, just reach out. We'd love to talk. And Shannon's one of the people that said, well, I'd love to talk to a pastor. And so I called her on the phone, and it turns out she lives here in, in mid-Missouri, and she had been really involved in the crossing, coming almost every Sunday until Christmas. And it was at Christmas of last year, almost a year ago, where she went through an unexpected and unwanted divorce. And then she had this big job change that came up on her, and she hadn't been back since. But she wanted to come back. I said, Shana, what would it take for you to come back to church? And she goes, I don't know, just somebody to sit with? And so I asked one of the women on our staff team just to meet her and, and connect with her and help her figure out how to get re-involved back in the crossing. It's as simple as that. She wanted to come back. She just needed to be invited back. Well, like I told you, we're on our way to Acts 11, and what we've been talking about so far is the great de-churching, less and less people attending church. And here's the impact it has on people like you and me, is that the less people that attend church, the, the, the more that people who do come to church like you and I, the more who identify as Christians who are really involved in their church, the more we feel out of place in our culture, the more we feel like we don't quite belong. I want to, to look at Acts chapter 11 because it equips us to live in that kind of world. The Bible is written by people who didn't feel like they belonged in their culture for people who feel like they're out of place in their culture. So it's written to people just like you and me. All right, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. So remember back in Acts 7, Stephen was killed and this great persecution broke out and then all the people in Jerusalem, all the Christians were scattered because they were trying to get away and escape the, the persecution. Well, now we're back to that. And, and the kind of the question that Luke is asking as he writes the book of Acts is, whatever came of that, whatever happened to all those people who were scattered because of the persecution? And what we found is that they were out sharing the gospel, but they were doing it only among the Jews. In other words, they were trying to find people who looked like them, believed what they believed, that they felt comfortable talking to. So that's who they were sharing Christ with. Verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So remember, there was a, one group who was only talking to the Jews or people who respected the Jewish faith. But then there's this other group of crazy Christians, and they're like, hey, we're just gonna share Christ with everybody. They even went to Antioch. Like when we see that, we're just gonna go, oh, wow, they even went there? Because it was the third largest city. So it was like the Chicago of that area, the third largest city. It was full of immorality. I'm not saying Chicago is. Full of immorality, temple prostitutes. But they just thought, I'm just going to go tell them about Jesus and that he rose from the dead and that he loves them and want a relationship with them. And even they started coming to, to faith in Christ. See, here's what I think we're supposed to, supposed to learn. 
is that when Christians feel like they're a minority, when Christians feel like they're out of place, they are more willing to talk about Jesus. Because when Christians have cultural power, when Christians have cultural respect, when Christians feel comfortable, well, they don't want to do anything that will upset that. So oftentimes Christians in those positions will stay quiet about their faith because they don't want to interrupt their power, their respect, their, their comfort. See, these disciples, when they were in Jerusalem, their home turf, they didn't talk as much about Jesus. But you kick them out because of the persecution, and they're telling everybody, even the people in Antioch, even the pagans, they're telling them all about Jesus. If we're unwilling to tell our friends, to talk to our coworkers, our classmates, our, our neighbors about Jesus, it might be because we feel a little too comfortable. It might be because we're holding on to something that we don't want to lose by revealing that we're Christians and inviting people to follow Jesus like us. Verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, now, Jerusalem had kind of been the power center of the church. It's where all the leaders hung out. It's where the decisions had been made. But now what we're starting to see is that that power center is starting to shift from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Antioch, from this point forward in the book of Acts, is going to be the most influential church in the whole area. So if you're Jerusalem, you used to be influential. People used to consult you. That used to be where the leaders are. And you lost all that power. And, and that's really hard. But, but with more and more people leaving the church, what we found is that Christians have lost some of their cultural power. I mean, the reality is that we don't live in the 1950s. We don't even live in the 1990s. Those are both seasons of our country's history where it almost was like beneficial socially for you to identify as a Christian. Like if you said you went to a such and such church, that gave you credibility. It might help you land business deals. It, it, it made you a somebody. But now to say that you go to a, a certain church might actually come with a social cost. People might think less of you because you attend church. Losing cultural power is, is always hard. And, and some Christians have responded to that by saying, we need to fight for our power back. We need to fight for a Christian America. But remember, we don't put our hope in politicians. We don't put our hope in presidents. Because Psalm 146 tells us that we should not put our trust in princes. That we should not put our trust in human beings because they can't save. And to be frank, the church doesn't need power. The church doesn't need respect in order to do what God calls us to do, which is to be salt and light in our world. And the reason I know we don't need cultural power to be salt and light is because in the book of Acts, when they're out sharing Christ and people all over the world are coming to faith in Jesus, those Christians, those early Christians, didn't have any cultural power in Rome. When Jesus told the disciples, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, those Christians didn't have any cultural power. So we don't need to have cultural power in order to be the church, to be salt and light, but what we must have, what's essential for us to have, is Christians who live like Christians. If you want to be salt and light, you've got to faithfully follow Jesus. See, Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He tells the Christians, you are a city set on a hill. You are the light of the world. To be a city set on a hill, you don't need power on Capitol Hill. Acts 11, verse 28 or 23. When he, Barnabas, arrived, so Barnabas goes down to Antioch because all these people are becoming Christians, and he saw the grace of, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. When we feel out of place, when we feel like we don't belong, when we feel like the culture is against us, what our main task is, is just stay faithful to the Lord. Cling to the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord. And what might help us do that is that we feel out of place. Let me try to explain to you through a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was 17, she dove into a river swimming with some friends, and she paralyzed uh, herself from the neck down. This is a picture of her in the hospital. She was in this striker bed with her body and her head and her neck in braces. For months and months, she was that way. She almost died in that drowning, and then she uh, survived that, but was in the hospital for years with all kinds of surgeries. Like I said, she ended up paralyzed from her neck down, and she's lived that way until today, where she's now 74 years old. From 17 to today, when she's 74, she's been paralyzed and in pain, but always had a deep love for Jesus in the middle of that. So she says when she gets to heaven, when she gets to see Jesus, here's a conversation she wants to have with him. She said, I want to say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Can you imagine being paralyzed from the neck down from 17 to 74 and calling the wheelchair a blessing? A blessing? Because it made her depend more and more on Jesus? Well, maybe us feeling out of place in our culture, maybe us feeling like we're the minority, maybe that's a blessing from God because he's teaching us to rely on him. Verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So over a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So Saul goes, or, or, or Barnabas goes, all these people are becoming Christians. All these pagans are coming to faith. What am I going to do? I got to go find the best teacher I can find. So he goes to Tarsus and he gets Saul, remember him, and, and he says, you come with me. And for a year, they just have intensive training, intensive discipleship, intensive Bible study with those new Christians. Now, now here's the deal. If, if we uh, think about our career or, or our education, we expect intensive, intensive training. We expect to work at it. We expect to be disciplined. We expect to, in our health to have to eat smart and to go to the gym and exercise daily. In our finances, we know we have to set aside money to save and set aside money to give. That We, we can't just do what we feel like doing. We've got to be intensive. We've got to be intentional. We've got to be disciplined. But for some reason, when it comes to our faith, we don't think that way. 
It's like we just think that somehow growing in our faith is going to come natural or easy. In the late 1930s, when Adolf Hitler was rising to power, there was all kinds of social pressure for the church to conform. And sadly, many churches did conform to what Hitler was doing. Hitler created this national German church. And, and a, lot of, a lot of churches got in on that action of the national church. And they stopped preventing, or they prevented Jews from going to the church. They, they took out their Old Testament out of their, out of their Bibles. And if you resisted that, as a pastor or a church member, if you resisted what Hitler's doing to the church, they would have you arrested. They would have you killed. They would have you put in a concentration camp. Well, there's one young pastor who responded to what Hitler was doing. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he responded by creating an underground seminary where he was going to train pastors. He was going to train Christians to, in the spiritual discipline so they could defeat the lies of Nazism. Bonhoeffer had a friend, a friend who was on his side in all this, a, a guy named Wilhelm Niesel. And Wilhelm Niesel said, you know, Dietrich, you're overdoing it with your underground seminary and all this training. I think you're overdoing it. And how's that going to defeat Nazism? He just didn't buy into any of it. So Bonhoeffer invites his friend. He says, come, I want you to come see what we're doing in this underground seminary. And, and Niesel shows up and he goes, before I give you the tour, come with me. He takes them down to a lake, they get into a boat, they row quietly across this big lake, they get out, they hike up a, a mountain until at the top of that uh, ridge they can look down on a German airbase where they were training Nazi soldiers. And what Niesel saw was planes coming in and out and so, soldiers doing drills, soldiers marching, soldiers training. And his friend Bonhoeffer looked at him and said, if we're going to defeat the Nazis, we're going to have to train harder than they do. He believed in spiritual training. That that's the way you and I are going to uh, survive in a culture that no longer appreciates us or respects us. Is that we're going to have to train ourselves so that we can defeat the lies of this world. But unfortunately, because we don't discipline our faith, because we're not intentional about intensive training spiritually, our faith has grown flabby. Let me show you a poll that was recently taken. Now, this is of evangelical Christians. It's by Lifeway, which is a great polling group. Now, these are what people inside the church say, okay? People who are committed to churches. 68% say everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. But hopefully you look at that and you go, no, that's not true. What the Bible teaches us is that all people are born sinful. 56% of church people, not, not the culture, say God accepts the worship of all religions. But you know that's not true, right? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 43% of people in churches like the crossing say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. But of course, you know that the Bible teaches that God is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was God. And the, the poll goes on, a couple more things. 26% say the Bible is, is full of myths and not true. 38% say that belief is a matter of personal opinion and not rooted in objective fact. See, when Christians don't train, 
when we don't study, when we don't learn, when we don't serve, when we don't give, when we're, we're not committed to the spiritual disciplines, when we're not in our own little underground seminary training with one another in the spiritual disciplines, then our faith grows flabby and we find ourselves believing all kinds of lies that aren't true. <laughs> this woman, her name is Stacy Irvine. She uh, was 17 years old when that picture was taken. At her job, she collapsed. Her tongue was swollen. She was having trouble breathing. They rush her to the hospital. They think she's going to die. They figure out the cause. You ready for it? For 15 years, since she was two years old, all she ate was chicken nuggets. And and you think, that's an exaggeration. No, no, pretty much it's not. She ate chicken nuggets from the time she was two. Some of you are thinking, is that all my kid's going to ever eat in life, right? Am I raising that child? No, that's all she ate. And guess what? If you eat chicken nuggets every day, all day, for 15 years, it's not, good for your, it's not good for your health. You know, it turns out you collapse and you almost die. Well, that's what happens to us as Christians if we're not training, if we're not in our Bible, if we're not praying, if we're not in a small group, if we don't take a women's Bible study or get involved in one of the men's things that are happening in the men's ministry, then what happens is that our faith becomes flabby and we begin to believe lies and we begin to be sucked into the culture and the culture shapes us more than our faith in Christ does. Look, I, I, I know this might be a little bit not what you're supposed to do, and maybe you're supposed to have one call to action, but, but I, I want you to see there's two here. One is that our church offers all kinds of opportunities. Will you train spiritually so that you can resist the lies, not of Nazism, but can you resist the lies of our culture? And the second is I just want you to think, is there somebody that you know that used to go to church here, that used to be a part of a church somewhere, and they've just kind of faded off, they're the casually de-churched. Maybe you know somebody that moved into town and that's the number one reason that people aren't connected to a church. They just never got invited in. Or maybe you know somebody that used to be in your small group or you knew them somehow from here and they faded off and you haven't seen them in a long time. They're Shanna, you know? They're just a different version of, of her story. Would you reach out to them? Get lunch with them, have coffee, invite them to come sit with you at church, ask them if they're interested in going to a study with you, just re-engage them at some level. If that was you, if you'd moved, if you were in a new place, if you had faded off, that's what you'd want, right? We're not the church police. We're not trying to get people to come who don't want to come. All we're trying to do is invite people who say they're very open, very willing eager to come back. If they just had a friend that made it a little bit easier, they just needed a nudge. Maybe the Holy Spirit would use you to be that nudge. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for all the people in our community who want to follow you but are disconnected. And I pray, Father, that you would use us to be the nudge that you use to bring them back in. We pray for all the people out there who have been hurt by the church. And we accept that there's a lot of things that we've done wrong. And we pray that you would um, draw them back to you. Father, we want to be Christians who follow Jesus and not the lies of this world. Give us the grace to do that. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May God fill you with all joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great Sunday.